ESG is the opposite. It is bottom up. This isn't Congress coming down and saying, we want you to do this. This is, I would argue, an investor-led movement. And again, query which investors we're talking about. But it is coming from the institutional investors. People want to know, retail investors want to know about how green companies are or not. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. This is Tom Fox. The ESG report is a little bit different today. It's not myself or myself interviewing one person. I have a roundtable of folks, and we take a different look or focus depending on the person. In this episode, we go inside the SEC with Karen Woody to look at the process and procedure and the arguments made by SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce against the SEC rules around ESG. Karen dissects them and explains why they probably will not hold up in any appeal of the SEC ESG rules. Karen Woody, our inside baseball expert, in this case, inside the SEC. I know you've been thinking about a lot of things around these issues, but I wanted to start off by asking you about the process for the proposed rules, how we come up with proposed rules, and then what does the proposed of proposed rules mean, moving to final rules. And also, as Matt said, it was a 3-1 vote by the SEC with Commissioner Hester Pierce dissenting. And I think you have some thoughts on her dissent and why at least challenging some of her conclusions. So what do you have for us on this? Sure. I think Matt explained that now that this proposed rule has been written, And the way that that gets written is obviously in concert with a number of different people involved at the SEC, including the Office of General Counsel and a number of other stakeholders that come together to come up with these rules. These aren't necessarily just picked from the sky. They had spent a lot of time working through this. And this massive, as Matt pointed out, 500 some page proposed rule is what they promulgated last week. Then we have about 60 days to comment on it we being the public. So essentially around May 20th is when the comment period closes. The SEC takes the comments under advisement and reviews them, and then eventually we'll promulgate a final rule. And so that is what is coming down the pike. So now is the time where we see a lot of the debate via these comments from all sides. And you're right, in terms of what I wanted to speak to, in terms of more of the substance rather than procedure here, deals with the dissent we saw from Commissioner Peirce and how, well, first as a sidebar, I'm curious to know if any of you all and the times that you've been following and watching the SEC, if we've always seen a pro forma dissent every single time there's a proposed rule, it does seem like the SEC has become so ideological in terms of the split of the commissioners. And now Commissioner Peirce says only her own self on her side, now that Roisman has step down. So it's going to be probably a 3-1 on these rules for a while until there's the second Republican commissioner appointed. But that, I think, the fact of that and the fact that we now see a dissent almost at every turn, I think colors a little bit of the discussion and the tone of the SEC. 
and one that I think is for the worse in the sense that this does feel like a very ideological, political type space in some ways, which I don't think is doing anyone any favors when we're trying to figure out exactly what it is that is material, what investors care about, what is actually affecting markets or not. And to relegate this to sort of the talking points on various news shows, I think is not helping. But that's a tiny side. But I do think we need to look at what Gensler's saying in this proposed rule. And then also, which I think Matt did a good job sort of walking through the fine points of it. But then also the, to step back and look at the broader ideas and scope of this rule. And one way I think to do that is to look at what the dissent is trying to argue is not correct or not maybe within the scope of the SEC's authority. And that is really the big pushback here. The SEC is outside its lane when it's promulgating rules about climate. It's not a group of a bunch of climate scientists over there. So what are they doing in this space at all? And so in this sense, my take is that it's well within the SEC's authority and mandate to be promulgating these rules, because I do think this is material information. And I think it bears directly on systemic financial risk. It would be hard to find an industry that won't be touched by a climate event at some point. Supply chain alone is one where that will be heavily affected. So every industry will feel the climate risk and feel the effects of a climate emergency. So that said, if we wade into what her dissent is, it really does start with one, we already have these rules. You have to already under Reg SK disclose if you, you know, under item 303, any known trends or uncertainties that will affect the company's finances. We have item 101 of Reg SK that requires you to describe your business. Item 103 requires you to disclose the legal risk that could be pending. So there the ways that you could piecemeal together, I think is her point of what you need to be disclosing now in addition and maybe at least a more streamlined way. So she's basically saying, we already have this. You already have to do this in some way. So that's one argument. I think it's an easy way to debate against that, which is the point of this was to put this in one place, have investors be able to understand climate as its own risk in one uniform type disclosure. Her other points of issue here are the ones we hear a lot, which is this is not material information. Investors don't care about this, at least not all investors. And to think of investors as a monolith is inaccurate. We have different stakeholders, we have different interests among the collective that we call investors. And this, I think I always hearken back to my, what I'd spent a lot of time in both practice and then in the academy now discussing the conflict minerals rule. And I think ESG is a perfect counterpoint to that. His conflict minerals came out under Dodd-Frank as a pet project of some of the sitting legislators at the time and became very much a top-down, oh, by the way, we're really worried about Congo and what's going on in Congo. So we're going to make every company disclose if they have any product that contains one of these minerals that is derived from Congo. But at the time, at least my argument was, no one has heard about this. No investors are caring about this. This is not the kind of thing that should be automatically pushed into the securities laws. And I think that actually, thankfully, is no longer the case. People now know what conflict minerals are. I mean, we learned a little bit about them even just from Jonathan's statements earlier. But ESG is the opposite. It is bottom up. This isn't Congress coming down and saying, we want you to do this. This is, I would argue, an investor-led movement 
And again, query which investors we're talking about. But it is coming from the institutional investors. People want to know, retail investors want to know about how green companies are or not. And so I think materiality is met by the fact of where this has come from. This has been a drumbeat from people investing in companies and want to know this. So whether or not you think it actually hits financial bottom line, it actually gives any information about the health of your investment. I think those debates are old now because the investors are asking for this. One other thing I'll say, because of course, in the dissent, there's also the other always tacked on, no one's done a cost benefit analysis here. That's always thrown in as a reason not to regulate. And then of course, the broad, this actually hurts companies and the economy because it's burdensome for them to to do this work. But one other one I, I wanted to point out that she mentioned that again, harkens back to conflict minerals is this trope about compelled speech and whether or not you know, you're requiring companies to say something that they wouldn't otherwise say or want to say. Again, that is a longstanding debate. It's actually the one challenge that had legs on conflict minerals disclosures. But here, I think, at least for this one particular dissent, it seems like she's a little bit arguing out of both sides of her mouth. She says, well, one, we already have that required as disclosures under Reg SK. But then you're saying, but it's compelled speech at the same time. So it's hard to know which side of that debate she's taking. But I think these debates are longstanding. They will apply to all things ESG, not just climate. They're going to come up again when we see the next one on name it, diversity, crypto, cyber, any other type of argument. These are the usual debates. But I think here, Gensler has the upper hand. This is well within the SEC's authority to do this. Matt, do you have a comment or question for Karen? I have two quick comments. First, I agree with just about everything that Karen said. But one other point that Commissioner Gensler was talking about, the reason why he wants to push ahead with this is so that we have consistency in what companies are actually disclosing. And imagine a world where everybody had to disclose financial data, but you could make up your own accounting standards along the way. That's not tenable. And right now, everybody and their uncle says that they are an ESG ratings provider and you can calculate things in all sorts of ways. And it's a big mess. And Commissioner Gensler was not wrong to say that consistency is helpful for investors. And that's what he wants to try to do. But actually, I was more wanting to talk about Karen's points on dissents with SEC commissioners. I absolutely agree that we are seeing more and more dissents from commissioners who are on the minority side. And that is not a new thing. I can remember during the Trump administration, it was the Democratic commissioners who were dissenting over proposed changes to SEC whistleblower rules. But what strikes me is that these days, these dissents, really, they read like a Notes version of a plaintiff's motion to dismiss when this gets hauled into federal court, which it will. That is a sad fact of life here is that whatever the SEC adopts, somebody somewhere will be unhappy with it, and they are going to haul this rule into court. And increasingly, we see these SEC commissioners on the minority side basically just telling their compatriots in the plaintiff world, this is how I recommend that you file a lawsuit. And you'll see all of this language like we are exceeding of statutory authority and various other key phrases and code words that plaintiff lawyers are going to be able to read and they know what it's about. So as much as we're all talking about this SEC disclosure rule, let's remember that once it's adopted, the next logical step is that some conservative group somewhere will bring it into federal court immediately. 
What happens after that? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes to the Supreme Court. Given this court, I wouldn't be surprised if they rule investors have no rights at all, which I think is what most of them would like to say if they had their druthers. But that's another dimension that we cannot ignore here. And Karen, I actually wanted to pick up from that point. Could you walk us through the procedure for a challenge to an SEC rule once it becomes final? First, you need to call Gene Scalia, since he made an entire career out of marching through every segment of Dodd-Frank and challenging it. Really, I mean, it depends where the challenge would come from, but oftentimes you see the challenge even just to the commission, so even within the SEC, at which point when you finally litigate through there, you get bumped out to the D.C. Circuit. That's at least how the conflict minerals rule got, I think, wound its way up to eventually hit the D.C. Circuit. But it's usually brought by, as Matt said, some conservative consumer group or who or somebody who challenges this based on any number of the things, as we said, as Commissioner Pierce laid out one of these. And usually the one that's, again, at least Jane Scalia would do every time was this cost benefit analysis. That's the low hanging fruit like this is going to cost. You didn't look at how much this is going to cost companies here and there. And then we start the process at that point and see how far it winds its way up. So would the suit be filed in federal district court? And could you explain the internal SEC process a little bit? Yeah. Well, so the SEC, as we all know, is its own little mini country in some way because it writes rules and enforces its own rules. And it has its own court as well with an administrative law judge appointed who's an employee of the SEC. And if you bring a suit initially at the SEC, you are heard by that administrative law judge. And if you lose there, which you likely will because the rules of evidence are a certain, it's a little more of a home court advantage for the SEC in their own administrative law court. You then appeal that to the commission itself, and then the commission will issue an opinion. And that after, if you appeal that is the first time you are heard by an Article Three court, at which point you appeal out to the DC Circuit, which is why the DC Circuit sort of is the foremost sort of place to hear administrative law opinions and is the expert on a lot of this type of issue. So that's one route. Otherwise, you're right, you could bring this as a federal challenge in a federal district court as well. Either avenue is open for plaintiffs on this. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ESG Report. I hope you'll join us again for another episode. And I hope that if you enjoyed this episode and others, you would leave a review for us on iTunes as it would help in our ratings. The ESG Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and One Stone Creative.